Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Want to learn how it's possible to have half of your brain removed? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. Hey, Anna. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Myth versus Medicine is back. Yes, we are. Anna, how was your week? It was good. It is really gross outside. My dog has been unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's fair. I... Meanwhile, I took my cat outside, and he liked the snow and rain, so I'm confused. Guys, Olivia's cat is the funniest cat ever. He just loves to be outside. Such a weirdo. Such a weirdo. Uh, But other than that, we've just been staying inside and keeping warm, so. Yep, it's that time of year. Staying inside and watching Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Speaking of Grey's Anatomy, should we get started with this episode summary? We definitely should. Go ahead. All right, so this episode begins with George and Izzy discovering Derek leaving the house in the morning after he and Meredith kept everyone up all night. Izzy and George assume Meredith is sleeping with Derek so that he'll favor her and start to ice her out. In the hospital, George ends up working with Derek to help a two-year-old girl with a rare brain disease, but gets into an ethical predicament when he realizes the anesthesiologist on the case may be intoxicated. Meanwhile, Meredith and Bailey treat a teenager after she received a botched surgery in Mexico. Alex and Christina work with a thrill-seeking patient with a bizarre hobby, and Izzy deals with a fighting couple after the man swallowed his girlfriend's keys. Throughout the episode, (laughs) Christina is fighting what she believes to be the flu, but later learns some shocking news. Ooh, we're leading with that cliffhanger. Yes, we are. So you guys have to stick around to the end of the episode to figure out what happened. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, this was such a good episode, packed with lots of fun, quick catches, and I love the cases we're talking about today. I was going to say, there was a lot of medicine in this episode. There was, there was. And a lot of it was insane. It was, it was. So we're going to talk all about it. (laughs) Yeah, that note, we should certainly start our quick catches. And I think the first one that I noticed was, you know, we've talked a lot about rounds and pre-rounds and all of the crazy timing on this. In the last episode, Bailey had said that she wanted pre-rounds done by 5.30. And we start this episode with Meredith's alarm going off and she and Derek are in bed and (laughs) she says, it's 5.20 and I have pre-rounds. And I honestly, I was like, wow, that's actually on the late end, which yeah, despite right? the fact that that seems very early, like oftentimes you could be rounding by then. So yeah, yeah. I was like, and okay, I, Meredith. Right. And it definitely depends on the day. So it could have just been a later day, but still 530 sure. seems like a stretch. <laughs> True. I funny. think they must have had a later day. I was like, all right, great. All right, great. And yeah, then they show up. Izzy and George are so done because Meredith and Derek kept them up the entire night and they're just sleep deprived and cranky. <laughs> and they show up and Bailey's barking orders at Meredith and Izzy's He's just so following. Oh my gosh, she is. And Izzy's just following Bailey around. And my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from this episode is that she looks back at Izzy who has a cup of coffee in her hand. She's like, 
you look more like me than you right now. Like, is everything okay? Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I had that quote too. <laughs> so you look funny. more like me. What's the matter? I know. And he's just I like know. nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's fine. You look more like me than you right now. What's the matter? Nothing. Oh my gosh. So, can we talk about the tasks that Bailey assigned Meredith? For this episode? Yeah. So a couple of the ones that she said, you know, and maybe there's some realness to this in that the point is that Bailey is giving Meredith busy work. Mm -hmm. But the task that she gives her, for example, she says, Nicholas and 3311 needs his meds and Mr. Moeller's IV fell out and he's a hard stick. These are both tasks that a nurse does or Mm -hmm. another hospital employee. There is never a time really when a resident comes in to give you your medications. Yeah. And so I just found this funny (laughs) because this is not something that you would see in real life. Unless maybe Bailey really is just like, Meredith will spend her day doing nursing tasks because she's mad. That's possible. She could. I mean, that could be very possible. Very probable, actually, with the attitude that she's having. But one of the things that I caught when she was giving Meredith these instructions is that she was saying that one of the patients is a difficult cath. So a catheter is something that you put up the urethra in order to get to the bladder and empty urine that is in there. And usually we use something called a Foley catheter, which usually works for everyone. And Bailey is telling Meredith, oh, this guy is difficult to catheterize. He may need a coup de tip catheter. And so that's a real thing. And they actually use it in order to get around urethral obstruction. So like if something's in the way and they can't pass the regular Foley through, they'll use this one. And so I caught that and I was like, oh, that's actually a real medical thing. Look at that. It is. I've (laughs) actually used one of those before because... Putting in a catheter is actually one of the few jobs that they'll sometimes let a med student do in mm-hmm. surgery. And during my urology rotation, I had an attending be like, oh, do you want to put in this catheter? And I was so excited. And it was a Foley catheter. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it. And I was so embarrassed because oh. I was thinking, I just can't do it. Like, I'm doing something wrong. Why won't it go in? Blah, blah. And eventually the resident was like, I'll take over and tried to do it. And then they also couldn't do it. They and know. the attending was like, oh, we're going to need a coup day. And then... I felt a lot better because it wasn't just me. (laughs) It wasn't just you. Oh, can we just talk about Christina in this episode, please? I was so confused. Yes. This entire episode because it shows her coming into work. At first, she's assigned to clinic with Karev and she's seeing a patient but then goes, oh, I'm feeling nauseous. I'm going to get out of here. And then you just see her kind of walking around the hospital, laying down in the call room, like laying down in the (laughs) locker room. What is she doing during this episode? (laughs) Like, I mean, clearly she's feeling sick and she says that she has this flu, but at that point, it's so silly that she's still at work. Yeah. It's one thing if you want to be there to do things. It's another thing if you're going to be there, but sleep. But honestly, this was something that I found kind of relatable because I think that as a resident, your life is so busy and you have so much to do and it's so important that you're at work so that you don't end up putting all of your work on other people. Mm. There's no one else. (laughs) It seems kind of crazy for Christina to be here. Like, I have the flu, but I'm going to still go see patients. Like, are you going to get everybody sick? But Mm -hmm. a lot of times I feel like there's this terrible paradox where doctors feel like even if they're sick, they have to be there. Yeah, yeah. But I just thought it was funny because she's just kind of laying around. She does end up getting into a surgery near the end, but I just thought it was funny. And then another funny thing that I saw was when she was talking to Burke being like, oh my God, you got me sick. I can't believe it. He's like, I'm not sick. What are you talking about? She's like, like, whatever, whatever. Walks away. And then you can see Burke as he's turning around, reaches up to his neck. And what I think that he's doing is checking his lymph nodes. 
No way. Yeah, I think they, so lymph nodes can get inflamed when you are sick. And so I think that he was uh, touching his lymph node on his neck, like trying to see if they were big or enlarged that's or tender. Because so that's funny. one sign that you're sick. So That was actually a great little funny. detail that they put yeah, in there for yeah, him. Yeah, right? Right? I that's thought it was so, so funny. good. This was also one of my favorite quotes was Christina just being so petty and frustrated. And she says, Burke says, you need to go home. And she says, this is not going to make me go home. You go home. And then yeah. Burke just looks at her and he's like, but, but I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what? This is not going to make me go home. You go home. But I feel fine. My other oh my favorite gosh. quote revolving around Christina being sick was we got another one of her insults to Alex, which are just, <gasps> yes. I feel like Christina always has great insults for Alex because she puts no effort into them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And somehow that just makes them even better. And Alex says to Christina, as they're sitting at this table and she's just feeling awful, he goes, you look like you need to be spoon-fed. And she looks at him and she just goes, you look like Alex. <laughs> you look like you need to be spoon-fed. You look like Alex. I was like, damn, Christina, okay. <laughs> Woo. Oh, they hate him so much at the beginning. They do, they do. Speaking of Alex, I think that we should talk about the patient that he had to deal with during this episode and any quick catches that we had regarding him. Yeah, good thought. Yeah, we see this patient named Digby come in and tell us about his crazy hobby, Olivia. Oh my god. His hobby, if you want to call it that, is getting shot or getting hurt so that he has cool scars on his body afterwards. So I guess he's a repeat patient here at the hospital. Bailey knows him, Burke knows him, and he comes in with another gunshot wound. Yep. This is a a quick catch that I saw when Christina and Karev were taking care of him down in the emergency room, is that before Christina leaves, because she says that she's nauseous, she takes a syringe with a needle on it and gives it to Karev before she leaves. And do you Mm -hmm. have any guesses as to what that would be? Oh. What medication would be in there? I wonder, was it, do you think it was like a tetanus shot probably? Yeah, I think it's a tetanus shot. So one thing that they do for all stab wounds slash bullet wounds slash any kind of piercing of the skin, especially when it's metal, will be to do a tetanus shot. And so I'm guessing that's what it was. Smart. Oh my gosh, good cat. Thank you, thank you. Oh, then we see him kind of doing worse after being in the hospital. Come to find out that his tattoo that he had gotten recently is has become infected and so Mm -hmm. the nurse calls alex and says oh he has increased white blood cell count and his bp is dropping and alex promptly orders for him to go to the icu and then just leaves if that patient is that sick to need to go to the icu i'm pretty sure that you would stay with the patient on their way to icu instead of just being like okay bring him to the icu bye (laughs) it's true (laughs) which is even funnier because we see all the time the doctors in gray's anatomy staying with their patients at times they do not need to like taking them to ct Uh and waiting for the imaging to be done now this guy is literally in sepsis basically an infection of his whole body and alex Mm -hmm. is like see ya Mm -hmm. yeah he's like okay bye Well, and then when this patient ends up going into, they they say he's in VTAC, which is ventricular tachycardia. It's an arrhythmia of your heart that is Mm -hmm. very dangerous. And this was actually a quick catch that was a good job on their part. They show the screen with the EKG and it actually was in VTAC. I know. And then I think one of them says to give him amiodarone, which Mm -hmm. also was a great choice. And I'm Mm -hmm. actually, I'm studying for step two right now. I think Olivia and I both are. And I was just going over the the drugs you use for different arrhythmias. And I know now that amiodarone is what you use for VTAC. So when they said Mm -hmm. that, I was like, wow, good job, guys. (laughs) Look at that. Look at that. Beautiful job. Yeah. 
Well, and then in this code, we've talked about this once before, how we know that when you say clear before you shock somebody, that Mm -hmm. clear means there's no hands on this person. We are ready to shock them. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they do this, even though it is in fact not clear. Tis not clear. And they did a little bit of a better job in this episode. By the time the shock was administered... There were not anything on the patient. And you actually did see this time they moved the oxygen mask, which we Mm -hmm. talked about before, is that when you shock someone, it's really important that you move the oxygen away because oxygen is very flammable. Mm -hmm. And when you shock someone, they could get a very bad burn or catch fire or something like that if there's oxygen around. So they did move the oxygen mask and they did move their hands. But in this, it was more like clear was the command to move. Yeah. They would say (laughs) clear and then everybody would move and then he got shocked. So Mm -hmm. at least... Hands were away when he was shocked, but really they're nobody on their should way. be saying clear. Yeah, they shouldn't be saying clear until he's actually clear. Yeah, they're on their way to the right way of doing CPR, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, that was a good quick catch, though. I like those. Yeah. In terms of other quick catches that I found, this one had to do with the boyfriend that came in who had swallowed the keys. And so oh he had swallowed the keys. And when they say swallow the keys, they're talking about the fact that he inhaled the keys into his trachea, which goes down to your lungs, and that's why he's having so much trouble breathing and and talking yeah. and all the things. And it, first, I want to start with the X-ray because the X-ray that they put up just looks like they <laughs> like photoshopped a pair of keys and stuck it onto the X-ray. It cracked me up. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Oh gosh! But then we see Izzy kind of taking charge, doing the bronchoscope, which is something that you use to visualize the trachea and then ultimately end up removing the keys. And we see a couple things before she does this. We see her spray something into the back of the man's throat. I'm guessing mm-hmm. this was lidocaine spray in in the throat. Mm-hmm. And so lidocaine spray basically numbs the area so there's less like gagging and pain during the operation. Mm-hmm. But then we see during the operation that he was, in fact, gagging quite a bit. Oh, my God. I thought he was going to throw up. He was like right? literally and he seems pretty awake, too, because Izzy talks about, you know, we're going to give you some drugs to make you tired. And mm-hmm. it is normal in certain cases for a bronchoscopy that isn't too involved to do this under conscious sedation. So you mm-hmm. are awake, but tired. But this guy seemed wide awake. He is oh, yes. gagging up a storm. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I think Izzy, Izzy did something funky. I don't know. I don't know. And then we see her doing it by herself. So yeah. Bailey says a quote in this that's actually very true in the medical field. It's called see one, do one, teach one. So this is referring to seeing something done, you doing it yourself, and then you teaching it to someone else. And that's supposed to kind of make you like an expert and really teach you how to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it was fair that Bailey wanted Izzy to do this bronchoscope, but she would definitely have been under supervision, not just doing it by herself. Yeah, so. she was just by herself. Bailey's like, see ya, go have fun. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Sounds good. No, that's crazy. <laughs> the first time you do any procedure, you are supervised. Yes, the first absolutely. time you do the first couple times, probably. But yeah, this is something that we hear a lot, the C1, do one, teach one. And I actually got to do, on this one service, we happen to have a lot of patients who are in need of a paracentesis, which is this procedure where they take fluid out of your abdomen that is usually building up because of liver disease or cancer. And I saw a couple first. I think that's probably common. You see it, yeah. see a couple. <laughs> see a couple, do a couple, teach a couple. <laughs> yeah. Ex- so I had seen a couple and then one came in and my resident was like, all right, Anna, I think you've seen a couple of these now. Do you want to try? And 
So that was really exciting that I got to do it. But there were two residents there with me. Uh They, you know, handed me everything I needed. They really walked me through every step that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing. If you've never done a procedure before, even if you've seen a couple, you probably don't know the exact intricacies of every step and you probably need someone kind of walking you through it so definitely definitely that's awesome that you got to do that though because I feel like that's so useful in terms of future training and I remember when I was on service I was watching someone do a spinal tap which is where they take fluid out of your spinal canal to analyze it and I remember seeing that I got to be what they call first assist so I was mostly just handing him the supplies because you need another person that's sterile. So I was just handing him, I was like, that's perfect for me. I don't want to do it. I'm fine. (laughs) Then the next time, then the next time that we did it, he's like, Olivia, would you like to put the lidocaine in? And the lidocaine is the numbing agent that you use, but you go like directly to the, like it's, still really close to everything like you can hit blood vessels and you can hit nerves and I was like oh okay sure (laughs) and it feels like such a big responsibility it does people are finally like okay you do it and we see that in Izzy when Bailey says you go do it she's like oh my gosh you believe in me you're you're gonna let me go do it (laughs) like she's so excited and and Bailey's like it's just a Broncos go like it's (laughs) It's not that big a deal yeah yeah it's so (laughs) funny but that was that's awesome yeah so I think that ring true is the see one do one teach one because we run into that a lot. Totally, totally. Okay, do you have any more quick catches for us? I have one that is not really a medical quick catch, but was one of my favorite moments. And it was going back to this patient, Digby, Burke comes in to examine him. And he says to Burke, how's the trumpet playing? So how's the trumpet playing? Very safe compared to your hobby. And I just like, I don't know why this cracked me up so much, but Burke plays the trumpet? And I'm just, yeah. do we ever hear about this again? Do we ever see Burke playing the trumpet? I don't think so. <laughs> they really just decided we're going to add a little character bit about Burke. He's a trumpet player. Which honestly, yeah. I feel like it really fits with his character, but we literally never hear about it again that I remember anyways. If so. any of you guys have ever seen a point in this show where Burke plays the trumpet or that we hear about his trumpet playing, please let us know. Yes, please. We would be very intrigued. <laughs> That's perfect, though, yeah. because I didn't catch that. The, the fact that they literally talk about that and then we never hear about it again. I know. I know. Do you have any other quick catches or do you want to get into our first topic? I do not have any more quick catches. Would you like to start our topics for the day? Yeah, absolutely. So this first one that we're going to talk about is we're going to tell you guys a little bit about gastric bypass surgery because mm-hmm. we see this patient come into the hospital who Meredith is taking care of. She is a 17-year-old girl who is a college student, and we Mm -hmm. meet her and her parents, who I have a lot to say about. I know. And she's having some terrible abdominal pain. She's passing out at home, and she had just come back from a trip to Mexico. And so she comes in. Her parents are saying that they think that she probably got an infection in Mexico. Mm Mm-hmm. She's Claire is her name. Claire is saying, I'm fine. I I don't need any help. Don't do an exam. Just give me some antibiotics and send me home. Mm-hmm. And we soon learn that she has much more than just an infection. We do. We do. So like Anna said, Claire is a 17-year-old girl who came into the hospital with some awful abdominal pain, a fever after she had passed out at home. And they consulted surgery to come and check on her and see what was going on. So Meredith came down to see her. 
So when she was doing her abdominal exam, which in the first place was hard for her to do because Claire was very reluctant to do this and also didn't do it until her parents stepped out of the room. Good on Meredith for being like, you know what, this would actually be easier if we had some privacy and kind of shooed the parents out, which was a really good move on her part. Yeah, this is something we talk a lot about in pediatrics and especially with adolescents that there are certain things that it is much more beneficial in order to have rapport with the patient and also to make sure that you're getting the whole picture to Mm -hmm. ask for some privacy and we see all kinds of great strategies for working with pediatric patients in our other two-year-old patient in this episode but Mm -hmm. this was a great tactic that Meredith also used with the adolescent yeah yeah so I thought it was perfect so Meredith does an abdominal exam on her it reveals really marked abdominal tenderness so everywhere that Meredith is touching the patient is wincing and saying ow and then when she lifts up her shirt farther it's revealed that she has four scars on her stomach and we learn that she had a gastric bypass surgery in Mexico so they figured this out by getting imaging on her stomach and so I had a couple quick catches in relation to this the scars that Meredith saw when she lifted the shirt up she was pointing out that they looked pretty fresh like she's like oh these are these are really fresh like these look a couple weeks old but Anna I don't know if it was just me but those scars looked really old (laughs) they looked old they looked old yeah Meredith was like oh they're still pink but they they weren't really they they were were, white yeah (laughs) after yeah after after a surgery there's various stages that your scars will go through and the scars that they show here look like a couple months like at least a month or two old like probably they looked pretty well healed yeah yeah definitely so when she said that I was like they're not actually fresh and then one other quick catch that I had and it was in regards to the abscess they said this patient had so an abscess is basically a collection of infected material that can arise from many different things for this patient it was from her surgery yeah basically the infection gets walled off into a little ball for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word Mm -hmm. that can continue to grow and get full of pus and Mm -hmm. can cause a lot of complications yeah really hard to treat usually they do it with some kind of drainage or surgery and then antibiotics but Meredith is saying that she has this abscess and she has peritoneal signs and peritoneal signs are when your abdomen is so markedly tender that when anyone pushes on it it's so painful that you kind of jump out of the bed you know you cannot stand anyone touching you and so Meredith is mentioning that this patient has peritoneal signs but the actor that plays Claire (laughs) it, it, it would be more than just a little ow when a doctor presses on your stomach she's like ow don't press so hard. <laughs> and the thing so. is, even though clearly this patient was trying to suppress her pain and to minimize what was happening, if you have peritoneal signs, you you can't minimize. Yeah. Even if you don't say anything, you're going to at least see like quite a flinch. Absolutely. So on that note, then, do you want to tell us a little bit about how gastric bypass surgery works? Yeah. So it's actually changed a little bit throughout the years. And in the late 1900s, they use something called stomach stapling. So this is an old style of gastric bypass surgery. And it refers to a procedure where they staple off a small part of the stomach, leaving a really small opening and connecting it to the rest of the stomach. And then this, in Mm -hmm. theory, will slow down the passage of food and results in weight loss and patients who are able to eat less but feel full sooner. And Mm -hmm. this worked well for a while, but they noticed a lot of side effects happening from this surgery, mostly severe reflux or heartburn because the food's kind of coming back up. Or stretching of the stomach, which kind of defeated the purpose of making the stomach smaller in the first place. And so these were really hard to tolerate long term. And many people actually ended up removing their staples and then losing their weight loss progress. But Uh. when they did have the staples in, the weight loss was about 50% in the first year. But since Mm -hmm. then, we've had a lot of new 
procedures that we do, and people can lose closer to 80% of their excess body weight. So those are what we use now. And when we hear at least what they tell us is the procedure that Claire had done, was Mm -hmm. it the staples or was it one of the newer procedures? So it sounds like it was one of the staples because usually we refer to the new stomach stapling as gastric sleeve rather than stapling the stomach, which I'm guessing it was the older version of the stomach stapling, especially since she had these problems with it. So it it could have been either one, but I'm guessing that it was the older style. Good to know. Okay. And so you mentioned now we have this gastric sleeve that also involves staples, but is a little different. Yeah. So it's much different, much more effective. And I actually saw a lot of these when I was on my surgery rotation because I was on a endocrine service. So we did lots of bariatric surgery and bariatric surgery is weight loss surgery. And it's such a cool procedure, honestly, to see. They do it all laparoscopically, so they don't have to open you up to do this. So for the gastric sleeve procedure, they staple off about 75% of your stomach. And uh, you're left with what I can only describe as like a banana-shaped stomach remnant (laughs) that can hold maybe like 500 to 100 milliliters compared to like 1,000 milliliters. So it really decreases the size of your stomach. But with... With the gastric sleeve, now these patients don't have the capacity to overeat because they literally can't fit it into their body, and so they naturally lose weight. And then they don't know exactly how it works yet, but there's a change in the hormone levels that travel between the stomach and the brain and the liver after this surgery Mm -hmm. that further contributes to the weight loss. So that's why it's so effective. And then one more that we can talk about is another one that I only saw once, and it's honestly pretty funky. It's called the Ruin Y gastric bypass, and it's where a portion of your small intestine is connected to a really small part of your stomach, and it bypasses a bunch of your intestine and then the other section of the stomach. However, because the bypassed portion of the intestine is where the majority of a lot of nutrient absorption takes place, like iron and calcium, Anemia, so low blood counts, and then osteoporosis or weak bones are the most common long-term complications of this surgery. So we see in this episode, so they take Claire back to the OR, Bailey and Meredith do, and they're Mm -hmm. operating on Claire to quote-unquote reverse her bypass and clear up her infection. Mm -hmm. But because they had to remove a significant portion of her bowel, her parents were told that she'd struggle for the rest of her life to get proper nutrition. And so this kind of goes along with bypassing important parts of your intestine that you need to absorb that nutrients. Right. It's almost similar to if she had had this Ruin Y gastric bypass because they did end up having to remove that portion of her intestine. Mm -hmm. And even though it's for a different reason, she gets the same kind of bypass in the end. Definitely. And so I think we can talk a little bit about outcomes after this surgery and it revolves around what was referred to in this episode. So what we call this is short gut syndrome. So Meredith Mm -hmm. is saying that Claire would have lifelong struggles with nutrition after this surgery. This will happen after having to resect or take out a significant portion of your small intestine and lifelong vitamin and mineral supplementation is mandatory. So I'm guessing that Claire will have to have lifelong follow-up with a bariatric program, daily multivitamins, and basically nutritional courses and education on how to get proper nutrition after this surgery. Yeah, and I mean, Claire's mom says something. I mean, she makes a lot of -of out-of-pocket comments, but Mm -hmm. she says something about this surgery and the results basically saying of course she had to take the easy way out and Meredith says to her this is going to be far from easy yeah this is going to be a lifelong health condition that she's going to have to manage Mm -hmm. completely the opposite of I think what Claire was hoping to get done she wanted to lose weight which she by no means would have needed to and we didn't really talk about the indications for this surgery but 
usually people who are getting this surgery have a BMI well over 35, well over 40, and have some kind mm-hmm. of comorbid medical condition. And Claire didn't have any of those. And when Meredith is telling Bailey about her when she first comes in, she says, we have this college student. She had a gastric bypass in Mexico. And Bailey says, is she fat? Mm-hmm. And Meredith's like, nope. Nope, not at all. Yeah, so just crazy that she felt like she needed to go do this. Yeah. And then one other thing that we can talk about just for educational purposes is there's another thing that happens a lot after gastric bypass, and this is called dumping syndrome or rapid gastric Mm -hmm. emptying. It's kind of what it Mm -hmm. sounds like. When you have these little segments of stomach that your body isn't used to having, you start to pass the food too quickly from your stomach to your intestines. And this can cause a whole host of symptoms, but usually it's diarrhea and nausea and crampy abdominal pain. And they really just manage this by changing the meal content and the size. But I think it's something interesting to talk about because these are all things that people who have these surgeries really have to learn how to manage. But overall, gastric bypass surgeries are a really good method for drastic weight loss in individuals who have tried a lot of lifestyle modifications, so dieting and exercise and medications, or have other medical comorbidities that make it necessary for them to have this good weight loss that they need. Yeah, absolutely. But not somebody like Claire. And I mean, this whole case is kind of just an ethical nightmare. So do Mm -hmm. we want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with like her going and getting the surgery in the first place? Yes, that is exactly where I want to start because I think that the concept of having to go to another country for a surgery is already pretty controversial. And I mean, we see in this case, the surgery that she had done was clearly done poorly. Mm -hmm. And she probably didn't really know what exactly they were going to do when they did this. Yeah. So when we're talking about going to another country for surgery, the number one reason that people usually travel abroad for bariatric surgery specifically was the cheaper cost. Because in the U.S., it can cost anywhere from $20,000 to $30,000. And that's usually like with some insurance payout as well. But in Mexico, mm-hmm. you can get the whole procedure done for around four or $5,000. So oh, that's interesting. it's much different. And that's one of the main reasons that people will go and travel abroad. So for somebody who actually needs this surgery, mm-hmm. that could actually be maybe a beneficial method, mm-hmm. as long as they are finding a reputable doctor and know exactly what they're getting into. Definitely. And I wanted to talk a little bit about just ethical principles in medicine mm-hmm. and part of why this is so not okay, whatever doctor or person did this surgery for Claire. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that you guys might have heard of before is when we talk about medical ethics, something you hear a lot is do no harm. And this falls under one of several medical principles that we hear about. So one of the principles we hear is known as beneficence. And this means that we want to do good by our patients. It means Mm -hmm. if our patient needs a procedure, we're going to do it. We're going to give every patient the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a principle called non-maleficence. And this means that we are avoiding causing additional harm to patients. We're not going to do things that would harm them. We are not going to allow them to do things that will get into harm's way. And that can be, you know, avoiding harmful habits and behaviors. And this also is not doing procedures that are not necessary. Yeah, And so in this case, doing a surgery on a patient who does not need the surgery, who has no good indication to have a gastric bypass and to just decide to do the gastric bypass on this patient completely goes 
against the principle of non-maleficence and that goes against the oath that all doctors take when they become doctors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's just sad that she even felt like she needed to do this in the first place but the procedure just shouldn't have happened when she went to mexico and they saw that she was not overweight and was not in need of this procedure well i think that's the thing too and I know, Olivia, you had noted this as well, that she is 17 years old. She's a minor. Mm -hmm. And so really, she should not be able to consent to this surgery anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that minors are not allowed to consent without the additional consent of an adult. And it's because their brains are still developing. They may not be able to make appropriate long-term decisions for themselves as Mm -hmm. a result and it's one thing for a minor to say I want this unnecessary surgery because I want to be skinny and I want these things and that is this kind of you know it is clearly a decision that is not fully thought through the consequences are not considered but for a doctor to then say okay sure you (laughs) want surgery I'll do it let's go let's go so not okay yeah and we run into this again when Meredith tells Claire that she's going to need a surgery to reverse the bypass and Claire says no I don't want another surgery I don't want to do it but in the end the parents have the final decision so can we talk a little bit about Claire's parents because I know that you had so many issues with them I was like I was cringing watching this episode it was painful to watch and you know her father is really trying to stand up for her in certain ways and you Mm -hmm. can see kind of that the mom is probably the dominant parent in this relationship Mm -hmm. and she is just walking all over Claire and making comments like oh she always takes the easy way out giving her no credit for all of the work that she's put in Mm -hmm. she makes this bitter comment about how she had to buy her new jeans when she came home from college and then Meredith is like she gets good grades she's not getting into any trouble why are you so hung up on this weight thing and even in the middle of all of this where we are talking Meredith has told them she has basically a life-threatening condition she could die if we don't do something and the mom still in the middle of all of this is asking Claire all these questions did you exercise did you, how's your diet asking mm-hmm. her all of these questions about what she's done wrong Gosh. in trying to lose weight and it is so inappropriate it is and Claire you can just see she's struggling so much and if any of you listeners have been to college you know that it's stressful times you don't have a lot of time for yourself at, at certain points and Claire's like you know it's hard I'm busy there's not enough time in the day and her mom's just grilling her on this weight loss when she should be worried about her daughter being safe and being healthy. Well, and you can imagine that this didn't start just now in college. This girl probably grew up in this household with this mom her whole life saying things like this to her and putting her down and making a impulsive decision like having a major surgery in Mexico mm-hmm. doesn't come from nowhere there is a lot leading up to this happening yeah and that's what Meredith says too she's like you know she didn't do the surgery for herself you know she did it because she wants to please you well and so in the end Meredith tells Claire I've contacted social services and they're going to reach out to your parents she says you don't know this yet but life isn't supposed to be this hard mm. and this is something that is a really tough thing to navigate I think especially in dealing with pediatric patients and it is that as physicians you are a mandatory reporter which means if you think that there is any kind of child abuse that is occurring that you are required by law to report this and to contact child protective services yeah and there are several roles that serve as mandatory reporters in this country physicians are one of them Nurses and other healthcare professionals also are, as well as social workers and teachers and police officers as well are required to report any 
concern that they may have for abuse. And this doesn't have to be always, you know, definitive proof that something is happening. But if you have reasonable cause to believe that there is something going on that shouldn't be, it is really part of your ethical duty as well as legal duty to report that. And in this case, while there may not have been physical abuse going on, it seems that there was probably a long chain of emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. There, it's any type of abuse. So there's there's physical abuse, there's emotional abuse, verbal abuse, mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Any Anything that you're concerned about that is hurting the welfare of this child, you are required to report. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that emotional abuse led to very severe physical long-term health problems for her. And mm-hmm. so I think that Meredith did the right thing here. And I think that we see a lot of places where doctors in Grey's Anatomy, and I would argue to say particularly Meredith, <laughs> tends to cross lines into personal situations with patients. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the surgery, she actually says to the mom, you know, she gets good grades. She tries, basically says to the mom, you need to be easier on her. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of cases, a doctor trying to give parenting advice is probably not appropriate. But in this case, with all of the concerns that Meredith was having about her health and safety and also knowing that she was going to have to contact social services, I think that she did really the best she could with a really difficult situation. That's a whole surgery wrapped up in ethical dilemmas and chaos. <laughs> I know. So I think that we should take our little break right now. And when we get back, I love our mid-episode fun fact. Oh, yes. Me as well. All right, guys. Stay put. We'll see you in a view. Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or link tree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support this podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Back to the show. All right, we are back. All right, you guys, let's hear that mid-episode fun fact. All right, so this one is more just about our characters on Grey's Anatomy, and Justin Chambers, who plays Alex Karev in Grey's, actually was not added to the show until after the pilot episode had already been shot. So they hadn't written in his character yet. And they decided later, at least according to TV Guide, they decided later that they were going to add him in. And they actually had to bring everybody back to set to re-record a lot of the scenes from episode one with Justin Chambers. Oh my gosh, he's one of the best characters. I know. And despite that, he is now one of the longest lasting characters on the show. He is. He is. He's outlasted many of the original characters. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he was added because I feel like he adds so much to the show. He's hilarious, especially watching him interact with everybody at the beginning when he's kind of just being the worst. Oh, he's so hated. We get Dr. Evil Spawn. We get all of our great Christina insults. We get all of our great Izzy lectures. Yes. None of that would happen if he was not added to the show after the fact. It would not. Love it. That was a great fun fact. All right. So 
I understand you're talking about Rasmussen's encephalitis today. I am indeed. We start this episode seeing George getting on a case with Derek. And, you know, George is a little bitter already because (laughs) he has learned that Derek is sleeping with Meredith, who he is obviously in love with. His lady. Poor George. (laughs) Poor George. And now he's put on service with Derek and he's a little bitter about working with him. But also he sees Derek just being the best doctor throughout this episode. And he has all this conflicted feelings. I think he actually says to somebody at one point, it makes it hard for me to hate him. Right? He's like, he's good at everything. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, and I think George actually says at one point to this patient's family, because they're asking, is this safe? Will he be a good doctor? And, Mm -hmm. And George says... Something to the point of, oh, he's good at lots of things. This is uh-huh. the only thing he's good at. Yes. Is he good, this Dr. Shepard? At just about everything. That... That's so funny. So good. One of the first things I wanted to talk about just in introducing this case that I loved seeing in this show, it made me so happy as an aspiring pediatrician, was the way that Derek worked with this two-year-old. Yes. And how he had to kind of make the medicine less scary for her. Mm Because this is a very real thing that we see in peds. You know, doctors are scary and they have needles and do things that hurt. And most kids don't like going to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And a fun thing that I think about peds is there's kind of a lot of games almost in how can I make this medicine more fun for the kid? Less scary. How can I earn this kid's trust? Mm -hmm. And help them to cooperate so I can give them the care that they need. Mm-hmm. And we see Derek do a couple things that were so cute yes! in this first scene. So the first thing we see Derek do is he's got his reflex hammer. He's trying to do the reflexes on this little girl. And he's showing her how it works. And then he gives it to her and he says, here, you want to do my shoulder? Oh, I love and it. This is something I've done this before with kids. Me too. You know, sometimes, <laughs> especially when we when you're going to look in their eyes or going to look in their ears, you can sometimes take the little light. And what usually we'll do is I'll put it on my finger so they can see how my finger glows. Mm-hmm. Then I'll put it on their finger and I'll say, oh, do you want to try and give uh-huh. it to them? They see that it's not so scary and they're a little bit more willing to go along with it. Yes, so yes. This is so cute. I was going to say one thing that I remember doing with a pediatric patient who had asthma and she didn't want to blow as hard mm-hmm. as she could. And I was like, you know, here look I have like a candle and I took out my my light pen and I said look I have like a birthday candle you got to blow it out like a birthday candle so I turned it on and then as soon as she started blowing I turned it off and she loved it it was oh so my cute gosh, that's so smart I love that mm-hmm. yeah yeah it was so much fun but we see him do a couple other things with this too that Derek yeah does well with we see kid. also with needles which can be hard he has the little IV that has a little butterfly tip and he says oh there's a butterfly coming and <laughs> puts it in she's looking for the little butterfly which was so cute so, a little spaceship MRI yeah like, oh it's so cool <laughs> he goes do you like spaceships and which I, I was like that's such a good idea because MRIs are loud and big oh, and yeah. scary and that's such a good idea call it a spaceship and he says you know my first lieutenant whatever george uh-huh. he's like dr george is gonna take you to the spaceship mri uh-huh. so, so cute. cute speaking of george i saw him blowing up a glove to make like a balloon and yeah. while some of you might think that's cute i actually know for a fact that you don't do that for patients that young because it's a choking hazard because oh, one point. time i wanted to do this like i was i was i was doing it and then we walked out of the room and she's like by the way we usually don't give it to patients who are that young because it's a choking hazard. Oh my gosh, like, that's oh, so funny. Okay, never mind. Good call, good call. George loves to blow up the gloves. He does. We've seen it a couple times. I was going to say, there have been a couple times where I think it was in the scene in the last episode where 
George and Christina are like shaming Meredith for telling <laughs> Burke that she punctured her glove. And you see George just blowing up a glove and whipping it around. I know. Balloon. My this gosh. man loves balloon gloves. He does. He does. Oh my gosh. I think George should be a pediatrician. He should. But speaking of pediatricians, is Derek a pediatric neurologist? Because seriously, <laughs> this is the same thing. We saw this with Burke earlier too. You need to be specialized to do surgery on a child. And yeah. I mean, maybe Derek has an extra degree and he that we don't know did about. a fellowship in pediatric neurosurgery as well as adult neurosurgery, but are you qualified to be doing a surgery on a two-year-old Derek? Yeah, I don't know. Pro- probably not. Oh, gosh, Derek. Derek was so funny in this episode because he's so tired, but he still puts on this awesome show for the patient. So before we go into what was actually wrong with this patient in terms of her brain abnormality, there was a scene in this where she started having this focal seizure in her left leg, and we see the camera pan different angles and a shot from the side actually shows Jamie but it looks like it's a doll and I froze this and I took a screen grab of it Anna I'll have to send it to you to see if you agree Wait, can you send it to me right now I'm dying yes it looks just like it looks like a doll and you're kidding it does I'm like that has to be a doll it does not look real and I saw it I said what, mm, what is that I'm so confused because I know there's work-related, like, hours and stuff that you mm-hmm. you can't cross with a minor. And so maybe they were like, oh, we will use the doll for some of it. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my gosh. It's definitely a doll because the color's different. It looks, like, stiff. The hair looks different, too, if you look at her hair. That's hilarious. So funny. Oh, my God. Yeah, wait, the hair for sh- <gasps> The hair is in, like, little pigtails. Yes, it's so different. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. That's a great catch. I can't wait to show you guys this on the Instagram. Okay, so then let's kind of get into what was going on with this girl. So like as Olivia mentioned, we see she's having these focal seizures, which a focal seizure basically means you are having a seizure in a certain part of your body and it's caused by a certain region of your brain having some kind of abnormality. And so Mm -hmm. we've seen some seizures in Grey's Anatomy so far. And I think that the classic seizure that is always shown in a medical drama is what we call a tonic-clonic seizure. And so Mm -hmm. that is you have these full body movements where you are kind of thrashing your arms and legs back and forth. Whereas in this girl, we see a focal seizure. So we just see her leg twitching. And we see throughout the episode, it is almost continuous. And George actually says this. He says she has almost continuous seizure activity in her left foot and her balance is off. And we see in this scene, she does have that kind of continuous twitching of her left foot. And then at some point it gets worse and it's twitching a little faster. And that's when Derek says, let's get the diazepam running, which is a good drug to stop that seizure. And he uses this little butterfly needle. So then they take the patient to the spaceship MRI. And (laughs) once again, we talked about this in our last episode, our quick catch, that it is very silly that we see doctors just sitting and waiting for the imaging to come back. And particularly an MRI. An MRI can take quite a long time. And we see apparently Derek and George are just hanging out in the room. They've got nothing better to do but wait for this MRI to come up. And they then explain what's going on with her. Derek says that she has what is called Rasmussen's encephalitis. And they show this picture of her brain where basically half of the brain looks almost blacked out. And he says half of her brain is dead or dying and left untreated. This disease is going to kill her. And the only treatment is to remove half of her brain. So 
I'd like to unpack a lot of this because yeah. this is this is a crazy disease and it, there is some truth to what he's saying, but mm-hmm. I think there's even more made up stuff in this episode. Uh, yes. So Rasmussen's encephalitis is a very rare condition. It affects about 200 to 500 cases worldwide. So once again, we see Derek taking care of these very <laughs> rare cases. Of course. Since he is the best neurosurgeon. The Derek. And, and it typically affects children between the ages of 2 and 10. This child does fall with only age range. And you do see basically dysfunction of one side of the brain or one mm-hmm. hemisphere of the brain. And this can cause a lot of symptoms. So it is true that a lot of times the first presenting symptom in Rasmussen's encephalitis is focal seizures and oftentimes near continuous focal seizures. However, this is usually the first symptom that you see in it. And it seems that in this patient right now, the only symptom that she is having is the seizures. Yeah. You can see that she's still talking to them. She's moving around with both sides of her body. It Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like she has much other neurologic dysfunction other than the seizures. So we would guess in real life if this is how she was presenting, that she was pretty early in the onset of this disease. Yeah. Generally, this disease will progress and you'll see mental decline. You'll see a loss of motor function, especially in one side of the body. You Mm -hmm. usually end up totally paralyzed on one side of the body. Yeah. And then you end up with progressive speech and language loss because the brain is very important for language. And the left side of the brain is where certain regions that affects language are. And so especially if you have Rasmussen's encephalitis affecting the left hemisphere of your brain, you might see language and speech loss. And all of these other symptoms generally start to arise within a year of starting to see these seizures. Yeah. And it sounds like from what they were saying, she had gotten evaluated about three months ago, and now they're coming in three months later to Seattle Grace for this workup. Correct. So she's probably pretty early in the disease. Interestingly, so Derek says, you know, if she doesn't get treatment, this disease is going to kill her. Mm -hmm. And something interesting to note with this is actually a lot of patients can live for many years having this disease. They will have pretty severe neurologic problems, Mm -hmm. but generally you get the onset of this disease and you kind of see the progression of these symptoms. And then there's usually a relatively stable residual stage after that, where you Hmm. have basically just stable, fixed neurologic symptoms, paralysis on one side of the body, motor and cognitive problems, maybe some problems with language. Now, the thing that can be dangerous and can cause death is that generally these patients do have very persistent, difficult to treat epilepsy. So they continue Mm -hmm. to have these seizures. And depending on how the seizures are presenting, you can have very serious seizures that can kill you if they're not treated quickly. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because he made it sound like it was now or never and that once it progressed to a certain point, he's like, there's nothing else I can do. I also thought this was interesting because from the imaging that they showed and what they were saying is wrong with this girl, the right side of her brain is what seems to be affected. Yes. On that note, I would like to talk about the imaging that we see. Oh, yes. (laughs) We see the MRI and basically you see the two sides of the brain and one of the sides of the brain looks relatively normal Mm -hmm. and the other side of the brain looks just dark and kind of black and he points to it and he says half of her brain is dead or dying and in this disease basically you have chronic inflammation of one side of your brain and it does cause a lot of areas in the brain to basically die however (laughs) big however this imaging 
I have never seen an MRI look anything like this. And I pretty much scoured the internet for an MRI that looked anything like this in any disease. And it it is just, there is no MRI that looks like this. It it looks like they just turned the gain down on one side of the brain. (laughs) Yeah. So I looked at a bunch of imaging of what your brain looks like with Rasmussen's encephalitis. So when we see kind of changes in color, we call that signal changes. And that might tell us something about the activity in the brain. But the main kind of change that you actually see in Rasmussen's is what is called atrophy, which is basically just degeneration. Like shrinking of the brain, basically. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so a normal brain has lots of folds in it. You see all of those kind of squiggly lines on a brain. And when you have atrophy, you kind of start to see smoothing out as you kind of have shrinking of that brain tissue. So this Mm -hmm. is the main thing that you would see is more just atrophy. And then you would maybe start to see some signal changes. So you would see in certain areas of the brain, hyper intense regions or white regions of the brain. And there are specific areas that are affected in different ways by this disease but you wouldn't just see across the board darkness Dark. like yeah. that that is just not so weird at all how the imaging would look yeah and now he's talking about wanting to do a hemispherectomy so taking out an entire half of her brain so is that mm-hmm. normal to do for this type of disease so it is actually this actually is a procedure and this is cool i want to talk a little bit about this procedure and Also, Derek mentions that because of her age, that she can recover well from this procedure. And there's some truth to this. This is a procedure that is done for this disease. Mm -hmm. However, it would not be done at this time with what we know. So basically, as we talked about, the first symptom that we might see in this disease is these seizures. But then you would end up with kind of this paralysis of one side of the body and all these other problems. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be until you're at that point and until you're in that kind of residual stable stage of the disease that you would do a hemispherectomy. And the reason for that is that a hemispherectomy is actually not going to treat this disease. It is not going to do anything to benefit really the rest of your brain. The reason that a hemispherectomy is done with this disease is, as we've mentioned, the dangerous part in the end in this disease and what can cause mortality in the end is having this really severe refractory epilepsy Mm -hmm. and not being able to treat these seizures, being really treatment resistant to medications. And so the hemispherectomy is actually done to treat the epilepsy, take out the part of the brain that is causing the seizures, and that can stop those seizures from happening Mm -hmm. and help prolong the life of the patient. However, it is not going to cure the rest of this disease. And it's important to note that if you take out half of somebody's brain, at least initially, you're going to have a lot of changes in your motor function and your sensation and all the other things that your brain does for you, you are going to for sure have paralysis on one side of your body. You're going to have probably some visual changes. You're going to have speech and language changes, maybe some memory changes. Mm -hmm. A lot of things happen when you take out an entire half of your brain. And that is the reason also why we don't do this until basically there's no other option. There's no other option. Mm -hmm. And after the disease has already progressed as much as it is. So it's basically like this side of the brain is already dead. It's not doing anything for you except causing seizures. We're going to take it out. Mm -hmm. It's not what Derek is kind of saying in, we're going to take this out and then she's going to be cured. So he talks a little bit about her age. Yeah. So this is a really cool thing about children. They have what we call very high levels of neuroplasticity. And all people have neuroplasticity. What this basically means is that your brain is capable of making changes. Mm -hmm. And so our brains work by being a collection of neurons, which is the type of cells in your brain, 
firing in different pathways to make us do all of the things that we do and to be the people that we are. Mm-hmm. And neuroplasticity basically means that your brain has the ability to form new pathways and learn new things and change in different ways. And it is true that if one part of your brain is not working, your brain can often basically rebuild new pathways to make a different part of the brain take over those functions. Yeah, to a certain and extent. And gain some of those functions back to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It is not a perfect process and it also is very variable by patient. But because kids are still growing, they have a lot higher rate of cell turnover. So they're getting lots of new cells much quicker than an adult does. And that's because Mm -hmm. they're growing. And so they need more cells to take up the space as they grow. And this is true in all of their body and also true in their brain. And so kids have more neuroplasticity than adults do. And their brain has more capability to make these changes and kind of regain some of these functions after a surgery like this. Mm -hmm. And this is a true fact about kids when they have a hemispherectomy. A lot of them recover really well. It is certainly not going to be perfect. A lot of these kids will still have paralysis on one side. But after months of physical therapy and occupational therapy and healing and recovery from this surgery, a lot of these kids can get certain functions back. Some of them can learn to walk again. A lot of them can recover their language function. But it's definitely not immediate. Like that takes some time. That takes some effort and work. Yes, it does. And this is something really funny that I found in this episode is Derek does this surgery. And afterwards, we see a little flash of Jamie, the patient, in bed with her mom after having surgery. She's waking up and she is moving around she's super interactive she's doing great and this would just absolutely not happen right after the surgery she at minimum would be fully paralyzed on one side she would probably have some other neurologic deficits that would make it harder for her to be a normal kid basically this would not be accurate in terms of how a patient would look like after this procedure no all of this stuff takes a lot of time and she Mm -hmm. just seems to be totally fine after Derek took out this entire half of her brain, which is just (laughs) hilarious. I think it's so cool that procedures like this have... Because when I think about taking out a whole half of your brain, it kind of sounds like sci-fi. It's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? I'm going to take out a whole half of someone's brain. But they do this quite a bit. Like Anna said, a lot for epilepsy or seizure disorders that cannot be treated with medications. The only way is to get rid of a chunk of your brain, basically. And it it is just crazy. And it is cool that they put it in this episode. Well, and this is, I think, a cool, rare condition that presents in a super funky way in real life and as we see in this episode. Mm -hmm. And so it is a cool thing that they decided to put in there but kind of key takeaways I would say are just they would not have done this surgery so soon Mm -hmm. and she also would not have had the recovery that she had from the surgery so soon (laughs) yes oh my gosh so talking a little bit about the ethics in this case which transitions us to our ethics section we can talk about the anesthesiologist that was on Jamie's case so this anesthesiologist was in charge of putting Jamie to sleep for the surgery And George had interacted with this anesthesiologist prior to the surgery and had kind of noticed the 
smell of bourbon on his breath and was obviously concerned and was asking all of his fellow residents and classmates, like, what do I do? I should say something, right? I have to report this. What do I do? How do I do it? Who should I talk to? And then he ends up being in the surgery with Jamie. And again, he smells bourbon on the anesthesiologist's breath. And he looks over to Derek and he goes, do you do you smell something? And Derek's like, I can't smell anything. I have my mask on. I'm wearing my mask. <laughs> <laughs> He's so funny. Well, something also that I just wanted to point out too is that there was another person, and I'm not sure if it was a scrub tech or just another person that happened to be in the scrub room, mm. who, as the anesthesiologist walked by, said to George, like... Yeah, George is like, what? Did you smell that? And he's like, yep, bourbon. He goes, and- yep, that's the bourbon. And it's wild to me that there was somebody else on this team who clearly knew him and knew that this was a problem who was just totally complacent. Oh, yeah. It, it's actually insane to think about because when something like this happens. I mean, we can, first of all, talk about how George brought this up, which was literally in the worst way possible. Although he definitely should have brought it up. And like, I commend him for doing that. There are so many different ways to go about this than just blurting it out. Oh, have you been drinking in front of everyone with no backup, with no proof, with nothing to stand on, honestly? I mean, even if he was 100% sure that this was what was happening, really what he should have done is pulled Derek to the side and Mm -hmm. said, I'm worried about this. Can we have a conversation? Yeah before we start this surgery. Absolutely. And honestly, this was a really tough situation. And I honestly don't even fully blame him for doing it the way that he did. I think yeah, I mean, he he's probably, probably was in a panic. Mm-hmm. I think in the end, it was better that he said anything. But he definitely could have done this yeah, in a more yeah. effective way that would have, you know, saved both him and Derek a lot of stress and mm-hmm. also maybe would have been more effective in getting this anesthesiologist out before the surgery started. Yeah, and not causing any harm to the patient, which we saw he right. fell asleep during the surgery and the patient was waking up. So right. it's just there is a reporting system in place for a reason for things like this. So if you're concerned that someone is intoxicated, if you're concerned that they're doing something that they are not supposed to do while they are on the job, there are ways to go about it so that they have a whole investigation, like a leave of absence from work, an intervention, like so many different things that you just didn't see in this episode because once Derek realizes, oh, maybe he is intoxicated, he goes, oh, get out of here. And like a a slap on the wrist. Like, I'm sorry, Derek. Is that all? No. I mean, and hopefully behind the scenes, there was probably follow up. But I think it's something that's really important in any hospital and really in any workplace is to have a reporting system like this and to have education about how to use a reporting system like this. Because I think that a really big barrier to patient safety in a situation like this is whether or not there's a reporting system in place, making sure that everybody actually knows how to use it and that George would know how to approach the situation rather than having to just like start yelling at him in surgery. 100%. And on top of the alcohol, I know that me and you had also talked about the crosswords that he was doing. And so I reached out to one of my friends who is in anesthesia. He is now a second year resident, but shout out Sadu. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Sadu. And I was like, hey, I have a question for you. I asked Sadu, I said, is it actually true or appropriate for an anesthesiologist to be doing a crossword while a patient's undergoing surgery? No way. No <laughs> and, way. And he, and he replies, he goes, there are probably, quote unquote, some people who do it, but would not recommend. Need to pay attention to vitals, monitors, room, surgery, but it's not good to be doing other things when the patient's on the table and you're not keeping a close eye on them. The most important thing for the anesthesiologist on the case is to be keeping an eye on the patient, looking at all their vitals, looking how their sedation is, all these things that you can't really do if you're doing a crossword puzzle. (laughs) 
Anesthesiology is actually a very active job because the thing that is interesting is, you know, every patient reacts differently to anesthesia and we only know so much about how exactly anesthesia works Mm -hmm. and how it affects different people and how much different people need. And so keeping an eye on all of those things that Olivia just said, and you're, you're constantly making these micro adjustments to all of the medications and making sure that the patient's responding to it. Mm -hmm. It is actually a pretty active job. Definitely. And you're, you're moving the table around when the surgeon says it needs to be moved and you're kind of the the head of the table if you want to call it that during the surgery so you really need to be vigilant and I mean Anna and I had our suspicions that crosswords weren't really a thing that people did I was like but, I don't think that he should be doing that yeah so but thank you Sadu for clearing that up for us yeah all right so other than the anesthesiologist what other ethical things did you want to touch on I wanted to go back first of all to this patient that we see Digby who has been, you know, getting shot for hobby and his relationship with Alex, because I think it's nuanced. I think that in some ways, Alex develops actually a really nice relationship with this patient. You see him really develop a lot of rapport with him Mm -hmm. as he realizes they're both from Iowa. They're both wrestlers. They have all this stuff in common. They're like really just shooting the shit, having Mm -hmm. a great time. However, the one thing that I kind of took issue with this is that as a result of Alex developing this broy relationship with this patient, mm-hmm. I sort of felt like he was egging him on mm-hmm. in his unhealthy behavior, such I can as see that. getting shot. And I thought that he was walking a fine line of keeping this patient's trust and also basically telling him that it was okay what he was doing Mm -hmm. and you see Alex even talking to all the other doctors in the hospital who were saying things like Bailey says hey the tattooed masochist had himself shot again glad to see he's still stupid and everybody's talking about how stupid this is and Mm -hmm. you know in the end this kills him Mm -hmm. and Alex is like ah it's his ethos you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger he's in it for the pain he Mm -hmm. likes the pain it's his ethos Like taking pictures of him while they're doing the chest tube, kind of playing into the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that there's a difference between creating rapport with your patient and supporting unhealthy behaviors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think Alex was trying to form a bond with the patient and I think he did. And so I think that in Alex's mind, he's like, I'm doing this great thing. I have this awesome relationship with my patient now. And I think that was a good thing for the patient, like to have a good relationship with Alex. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's for sure a fine line because you want to have that kind of relationship with your patients and you want them to trust you so that they'll tell you things and so that they can get a full picture of their health and so that you can help them. Yeah. And it can be really hard to have to, when you have a connection with a patient like that, to have to feel like the bad guy mm-hmm. and to be like, actually, I'm not okay with what you're doing and this is an unhealthy behavior, not yeah. what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you know, this getting shot is a pretty extreme example of this, but the same things mm-hmm. apply to, you know, when you have a patient who you are trying to help with smoking cessation or to exercise more or you know more things that you see on a daily basis where you want to support this patient and you want to tell them that they're doing a great job if they're doing the best that they can do but there are mm-hmm. certain things that you kind of do have to have tough love and say this is gonna really have a detriment to your health if you keep doing yeah. this yeah imagine imagine a patient who comes in and eats mcdonald's three times a week you're like yeah good on you for doing that like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger like you, wouldn't, you just wouldn't ethos. say that to a patient yeah no, yeah you, you just wouldn't. wouldn't say that the one other ethical thing that i wanted to bring up and we've talked a little about this in the past but it kind of has to do with nepotism and privilege in medicine and at the end of this episode when izzy is talking to meredith about her relationship with derek 
she is getting really upset and Meredith is saying I'm gonna do what I want I can face the consequences and you see from Izzy's perspective she kind of sees this privilege in Meredith that upsets her and she says look you went to Dartmouth your mother is Alice Gray look at this house Mm -hmm. everybody respects you like you you walk into a room and everybody automatically respects you Mm -hmm. and I, I think this is something really interesting to talk about in medicine and I think a lot of med schools these days are trying to make more of an effort to admit students who come from a variety of backgrounds and who are going to be good doctors for who they are regardless of their upbringing. But it does give you a really strong advantage when you come from an upbringing like this. If you have parents who are doctors, if you have parents who have money, who can, Mm -hmm. you know, have this big house and provide you with all of the resources that you need to get a good education, to send you to an Ivy League school. These are all things that you know, it's not the end all be all, but it makes it a lot easier for you to break into the medical field. Mm -hmm. And Izzy says, you know, I grew up in a trailer park. I posed in my underwear to get myself through school and I didn't have these advantages. I had to kind of crawl my way out. And I think that this is just an important issue to talk about because it's something that you see all the time. Mm hmm. Definitely. We do see this a lot. And that's what Izzy's kind of referring to here. And especially when it comes to Meredith's respect that she feels like she gets in the hospital is that Izzy's a woman in medicine. She is concerned about people not believing that she's actually a doctor. She says, yeah, when I walk in, they think I'm the nurse. And she's really harping on the fact that you're throwing this all away to be with Derek when you were given this amazing privilege and opportunity. Why are you throwing it away type of thing? Yeah. And this really is a systemic issue in that some people just do have these advantages. And, you know, it's not necessarily a hit on Meredith or a hit on anybody who has Mm -hmm. advantages that help them to get to where they are in med school. It doesn't really say anything about the kind of doctor you're going to be. And we see Meredith grow into this excellent doctor over the many years of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) But the reality is some people come from backgrounds that set them up for success in medicine and some people don't and I think that it's just important and I I think Izzy is kind of telling Meredith in this place just check your privilege and know that people are coming from different backgrounds and not everybody has the same struggles and not everybody has the same experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was really good to touch on. Yeah. So in terms of our end takeaways from this episode, I know you had a few. Did you want to start? Yeah. So one of the relatable moments that I saw in this, not for myself necessarily, but (laughs) is at the beginning of the episode, we see Alex running to work and Izzy's like, seriously, ran here? And it is amazing how many people do this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure it it varies by where you live and how Mm, (laughs) easy or difficult it is to do this. But I mean, we're at the University of Michigan and there are a lot of doctors who run to work every day like miles in the rain in the snow in the cold (laughs) on one of my teams there was this pharmacist who was just in the greatest shape ever and we were beginning to work at five in the morning and he would get there on time every morning he would have run there he would you know do a quick change of his clothes and ready to work and I find that so impressive that is so impressive I am not a runner but I did do a lot of biking to the hospital during my clinical year because when I first started my clinical year I was about a mile away from the hospital so it was super easy Mm -hmm. it would take me maybe five minutes to bike to the hospital it was Mm -hmm. so fast that's impressive though because the hospital that we work at is kind of up a hill it is like the the bike route that you must have been taking must have been almost entirely uphill so even that honestly is still pretty impressive to me yeah but it was nice because then after work it would just be all downhill contrast that to when I moved now I'm about three miles away from the hospital I would still bike to work and it's a great way to wake up in the morning and get a workout in honestly yeah but 
the way there would be downhill, so it was great. I would just coast almost the whole way there. But then on the way back home, it was all uphill. And by the time I got home, when I tell you I was drenched in sweat, I felt like I just (laughs) did the hardest workout of my life. But Wow, uh, I'm feeling really inspired. Maybe I'm going to start running to work. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Well, you actually run, so you could do it. I do run, but I can't say I've ever run to work. All right. Well, that was a great one that I noticed at the beginning of the episode because I think it was so funny. Everyone was just so outwardly annoyed at Alex for being this awesome physically fit runner coming into work they were so annoyed I know, I know. <laughs> but on the other hand my takeaway was actually in regards to izzy and what she's doing at the end of the episode which is baking a cake and yeah. it's so I funny stress baking yes and i do this i'm very guilty of this i bake to de-stress a lot she does and she's good at it she does <laughs> Well, it's just so easy to pour some energy into something other than medicine and have like a fun outcome and I can give it to my friends and I can give it to my neighbors. And we very much appreciate it. (laughs) But oh my gosh, I know that one of your favorite quotes was from Izzy Baking. Do you want to tell it? Oh my God, it was. Okay, well, it's just this whole scene that just forms my heart where Izzy is realizing that in fact, Meredith is not sleeping with Derek to get ahead and in Uh fact, is really falling for him. And Meredith's like, no. No, no. And he's like, oh, you like him? And she's like, no. And, and she's like, oh, you're she screwed. Goes, <laughs> she goes, you're, yeah, she goes, oh, no. You poor girl. You're falling for him. I am not. Oh, you so are. No, I'm not. You so are. Damn it. You poor girl. You know, it's just that he's just so... And I'm just... I'm having a hard time. All are mushy and warm and full of secret feelings. I hate you. And your cake. My cake is good. Uh huh. I love it. This so is my she's favorite scene. So good. So good. Because it's at this so point good. that Izzy realizes, oh crap, you're falling oh, for this no. man. <laughs> I know. And then we finish up the episode seeing Meredith and Derek going back to bed, finishing the way we started. Oh, yes. But this time they are going to sleep. And (laughs) Derek literally is still in his full work clothes, like buttoned down and all. Uh And he literally just like head hits the pillow and he's out. Flops. And I just loved this ending i thought it was the most relatable yes it was so good on several occasions fallen asleep in my clothes and my scrubs where i'm just like nope nope we're done we're out love it speaking of sleep i might just go take a nap as you should as you should you deserve it (laughs) all right guys well thanks for tuning in to our seventh episode i cannot believe it oh my gosh it's crazy well we will see you next time all right bye guys thank you so much for joining us for this episode We hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine. If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, and subscribe to our email list or make a donation. We appreciate your support and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.